So we're continuing our series on Acts, and uh, today we're going to be focusing mostly on Stephen's speech. But before we get into that, uh, let's just all pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come together. Lord, I pray that um, as, we, as we meditate on what Stephen is doing in this portion, what Luke shows us, that in the same way that he sees a greater reality than what can be seen just by looking at the physical, that we too will be able to recognize and see that reality. That we won't be hampered by just what we see in the physical world, but be able to see beyond that. And Lord, do open our eyes to see that in your name. Amen. So today is Pentecost Sunday. And so um, I was going to go back and sort of just remind us of some of the sermons that we did on Pentecost. And, and the reason to do that isn't because, well, because it's Pentecost Sunday, Sunday and therefore we should do it. It's because Pentecost is sort of that kickoff point for Acts. And so when we looked at those facets of what Pentecost is, the point of that isn't to just be like, cool, check, 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 check. We learned a bunch of interesting facets. No, the point is, is that as we're reading Acts, we should be thinking about those facets and seeing how that reality is coming to fruition that's been announced and that that's part of what reading Acts is. If we don't see those facets as we're reading, we probably need to meditate deeper. And so that's what those are for. They're not just there because, well, it's cool to make connections between scripture, but to how that actually all flows together and that there's a story that is being told. So to recap on those five, five um, sermons that we did, the, one of them was about God reclaiming the nations from the authority of rebellious angels. Um, it's the inversion of Babel, right? So it's not that God just gives them over out of uh, just vindic- being vindictive. He gives it out of grace because to live in a rebellious nature under him is dangerous. And so Israel constantly experiences that because they do. The other nations actually are given a buffer and then those angelic beings instead of doing their appropriate role, allow the nations to worship them. And that's the problem. The church corporately is the temple where heaven and earth overlap. It's, the God, it's where God's space and our space overlap. Um, and so from that standpoint, we can look at things like how dangerous, again, it is to death by holiness and the significance that we corporately are the temple. We're called into a new exodus that leads to an invasion of the promised land and growing the kingdom of God. And understanding that the first exodus, exodus that led to the invasion of the promised land wasn't just some arbitrary driving people out of a land, but actually dealing with a perversion of creation itself, a removing of something that it needed to be removed. And in the same way, we're invited to the same thing. Brought back from, uh, number four, brought back from a spiritual death into, not, into a new life where we are sons of God and therefore are seated in heavenly places and will judge angels. That we've been given new authority because the spirit has been poured out into us. And so our, our responsibility, our authority is different than what has been before. And number five, also because of this, all are called to be prophets, those who are invited into God's counsel. That's, that is what it means to be a prophet at the, at the core is to intercede for others, to learn from the Father, to communicate his wisdom to others. So these five facets are the base, that bedrock of understanding and thinking about how as we're moving forward through Acts, we should be seeing those things. So I'll start you off with a, a question. Do you believe the true reality? We don't see Jesus even though he says he is with us. In the same way, do we believe the reality that we are in the heavenly council bearing witness of the truth. 
Do we believe the true reality even though we don't see it? What Stephen sees is the true reality even if we can't see it. And so we'll come back to that. But I just want you to you just think about that. So to, again, just keep framing this whole thing in so we can really think about Acts 7. We want to think even about sort of what's been going on in this and then even sort of look at the, some of the themes that we're going to see as we move through this. So there are going to be three themes that I'm going to focus on here. What Stephen does with his speech is amazing. It feels really boring when you first read it, but the more you think about it, the more amazing it is. I'm going to focus on three themes. There's way more that are going on here. Uh, the trial of Stephen appears to be before the council of the Jews. That's what it appears to be. But as we go through, what we realize is that the story is actually telling us that the real, real trial is in front of God's council. We, he is standing and looks and sees the God of the universe. And he says, there is the son of man. And what we realize is that the, the Jews think they, are, they have Stephen on trial. And the reality is, uh-uh, <laughs> they're on trial. Number two, proper orientation of law and sacred space. There has been a change, a fundamental change to where the, the God's presence is. And so what we need to think about with that is, is what does it mean that the temple is now corporately a people? And how does that change the way we interact with it? Number three, Jerusalem is guilty and judgment is coming. So to orient ourselves, we're coming here to Acts 7. What we, we've seen is that there's a progression of persecution that's been happening. That it started with warning and imprisonment in Acts 4, imprisonment and beating in Acts 5, and by, you know, here in Acts 7, we get death. So it, it's an it's a escalation of things going on. And in the same way, we initially started with the fact that this is a, a group of leaders that is the one that is really bringing this persecution. And by the end of chapter 6, it is the people and the leaders who are bringing it. So it is no longer just a, a group that is bringing it, but it is a, a systemic problem that is there. And the next thing to think about here is, is that what's interesting about the way Luke tells the story is, is that both in Acts 7 and in Acts 12, we get persecutions. In Acts 7, we get Stephen's. And then in Acts 12, we get James's death, and Peter is, is put in prison and then escapes. And in both cases, what we get to see is Jesus tells us at the very beginning, the way the kingdom's going to grow is from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so what happens is, is at Acts 7, there's a transition. We are going to move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts 12, we're going to move from Judea and Samaria to the world. And so in the same way that Christ's death progresses the kingdom, <laughs> the martyrs, drive the kingdom forward as much as that is difficult to deal with. So let's talk about Stephen's speech. If you read Stephen's speech, it's pretty long. And this is surprising because it just, you know, somebody, just a couple verses, uh, a couple chapters earlier, God says, uh, an angel comes to Peter and says, go out, and he, he gets out of prison, and he says, go out and tell them all the words of life. And then we told nothing about the speech. Nothing. Diddly. Wait. Wouldn't that have been an awesome speech to hear? So then we get this speech. And for some reason, this speech is so important that he gives us a huge portion. So the way Pro Professor John Killigan puts it is, in the ordinary cycles of Christian liturgical life, 
one does not come across the full version of the speech of Acts, of Stephen and Acts. Even biblical study groups often avoid it. Yet the very length of the speech indicates that Luke, Luke thinks it is important. In the New Testament, no one else but Jesus gives such a long speech. So there's something about the speech that is significant and that we shouldn't just um, go, well, man, it's a recap of Israel's history. Boring. I know this history. Moving on. So then from that standpoint, we can look at what are the charges that Stephen has brought against him? Because the question is, if you read the speech, does he actually even answer the questions that are brought against him? So in Acts 6, 11 to 15, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard his, him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So if you just distill this down to sort of what are the charges that are brought against Stephen, the charges are blasphemy against Moses and God, speaking against the holy place or the temple, and speaking against the law. So those are the charges that are brought against him. And the question is, does he actually answer these questions? So I've, I've actually, in the next slide I think is a word cloud. Yeah, okay. So this is me being nerdy for a second. Oh wait, not that I am, not the whole time. Um, uh, this is my statistical software press, uh, package that I use at work all the time. I put uh, Stephen's speech into it, ta-da, and uh, um, I apologize, all the words are uncapitalized, it's nothing, it's just the way the software works. The bigger the word, the more times it's said. So, the charges against him are blasphemy against God and Moses, yeah, it seems like those words are pretty big in there. He's dealing with those ones. You also get some stuff about Egypt, clearly he's interested in that, and he's also interested in the fathers. What you don't see in here is any real statement about the law, the holy place, or the temple. So if he addresses them, he doesn't just come out and straight say it. He's doing something else. Now, if I was answering those questions, I'd be like, yes, yes, no, no. Like, I agree with these things or I don't agree with these claims. Stephen doesn't do that. He, he, he gives a whole speech that answers these questions. So what is the purpose of Stephen's speech? And so I think actually really the best place to start with that is to read near the very end of his speech. Acts 7, 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So when Stephen goes and tells us the story of Israel, we shouldn't be hearing the story of Israel. Stephen's hitting points that says, you're guilty of this, you're guilty of this, you're guilty of this. Stephen's pur purpose in giving the speech is to show that the current people are guilty of the same things as their ancestors. In so doing, Stephen shows that the charges against him the people he is speaking to are the ones who are actually guilty of. So in doing this, he actually flips the tables and says, you know those charges you brought against me? No, it's you who are actually guilty of these things. So where to start with this? Start at the very beginning of the speech. Stephen starts the speech and says, the God of glory. 
Now, that phrase is only used one time in the Old Testament. Only once. And so, to, to understand what he's doing, I think sometimes what we have to do is remind ourselves of the fact that we are just not as familiar with the literature of the Bible as we are with modern literature. And so, when I say, may the force be with you, Star Wars, but it doesn't just bring Star Wars. You instantly get ideas and thoughts. In the same way Daryl, a couple weeks ago, played the Imperial March. The instant he played that, you had feelings and emotions associated with that, and ideas. And so we're so familiar with that literature that when we say those type of things, you can do that, you get it. We are not as familiar, or at least I'm not, with Scripture to the point where when he says something like, the God of glory, I instantly go, oh... Yeah, I know what all he's sort of like getting at in using that phrase over some other phrase. So for instance, another one maybe we would do is uh, doe a deer, a female deer, ray a drop of golden sun. Instantly, it brings certain emotions, ideas beyond just what the words mean. In the same way, when Stephen does this God of glory, he's not just saying the God of glory, he's bringing in ideas and themes with it. So if we go to Psalm 29 and look at this specific verse, uh, chapter, starting at verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. So we're being reminded that worship is, is an uh, res, uh, appropriate response to this God, that he is over all, and that it's so important that worship, that even the heavenly beings worship him. That's what we're called to. And then that, that, uh, that chapter closes. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And so we have these ideas of worship of God sitting enthroned in judgment and ruling. And you can already see how these start to come into, into play as we're going through this. So then from there, he moves on and he starts the story where you'd expect the story to start with Abraham. Abraham is the beginning of the story of Israel. He's the point where the Tower of Babel has happened, the nations have been scattered, and God creates a people where there were no people before. He brings Abraham that isn't a people and makes them a people to be a blessing to the nations, to demonstrate what it's like to live under the God of glory. And so this is where, where he starts, where you'd expect any good Jew to start the story of Israel. And so Stephen summarizes this portion as basically God calls Abraham out of Haran Abraham has no inheritance in the land that his descendants are promised. God tells him that his family will be in exile before he frees them. And so when we get to Acts 7, verse 7, he says the following. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So Israel will be brought out of Egypt, and they will worship in this place. And so Professor John Killigan again puts it this way, stated another way, you will be freed so that you will worship me in this place. Stephen means to now ask, has Israel truly worshipped me in this place? 
What will Stephen's answer be in this guard? If, he's, in, if he says that Israel has gone against its very reason for being, how will he prove that? So the question then becomes, and you can see how this starts to t- tie in, right? Right with what he said with God of glory. We're, there's this whole emphasis on worship. And all of a sudden he's coming in and saying, have you, have you worshiped the way you're supposed to? <laughs> have you done what God called you to do? And this, that's, this is then what Stephen will answer as we move forward. So then we move to Joseph. Acts 7, verse, starting at Acts 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs, patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and now our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their visit. And on the second visit, Jacob made, Joseph made known himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent back and summoned Jacob to his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. So if you read that, instead of just hearing a summary, hear it as a critique of exactly what these people have done. We'll go back and just start at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Do you see it? Jesus was sold. Why was he sold? Because they were jealous of him. And so here, they, the same thing. You know, Stephen's standing here saying, do you see that the very problem that has been there from the beginning continues to play out as we move forward? You sold the very person who is supposed to save you. And he is generous enough that if you come to him, he will save you. The very person that you rejected can save you. Another point, just sort of as we hear through through this as as we listen, what what we'll hear is, is Joseph was sold to Egypt. In this story, who's Egypt? Israel, right? Israel's the one who buys Jesus off of Judas. And as we go through the story, what you're going to hear is is that Egypt is constantly being referenced. And when you look at who is Egypt, it's Israel throughout the story. So not only are they guilty of breaking the law, of of doing these things, but they are the very uh, society that they were brought out of. They're supposed to be the antithesis of that, and they've instead become the very thing. Acts 7, 23 to 28. We're looking at Moses now. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the person. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was doing his neighbor was wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Why do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Okay, so we're hearing the story of exactly what happened. So it it says in in verse 24, sorry, um, 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
The very thing, again, that Jesus came to do to bring them into salvation is the very thing that they don't recognize that he's supposed to be doing, that he's bringing them into that. And so they reject it because they don't want to be freed from Egypt. What's Egypt in this story? Israel has become the very thing that they're not supposed to be. That's what Stephen's driving at here. They have become the very antithesis of what they're supposed to be. So Moses was rejected by his brethren, even though he was sent to bring salvation to them from Egypt, just in the same way Jesus was. Acts 7, 30 to 34. Now when 40 days had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. So this portion, there's a couple things going on, but I want, I want to focus on this, which is Stephen's been asked, what's his take on the temple? And Stephen actually answers some of this right here. Before the temple, God's space and our space would overlap at times. In this burning bush example, take off your shoes because you stand on holy ground. And so in the same way, Stephen's announcing that the exact thing that we're, you know, we're looking at here is, is that we don't, that the orientation to the temple has changed. There was and will continue to be places where things overlap, that God's space and our space overlap. We are the temple. We are, we are covering the earth in God's space as we expand out. Acts 7, 35 to 41. This Moses whom they rejected saying, what made you, ruler, made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Again, just, I'm going to pause in this portion because I think there's just so many things. You know, Moses is sent as ruler and redeemer. Jesus is sent as ruler and redeemer. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. Wonders and signs, very much similar to somebody. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Okay, again, if we're seeing this example, where do they turn in the story story of the current age, right? They turn to the very thing that Stephen is now saying, it's Egypt. It's Egypt. Guys, you are living in Egypt. You have not escaped Instead, you have joined and become bondage to the very thing you were supposed to be brought out of. Our fathers refused to obey, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go with us, go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So the question then, is, as Stephen gets to this point, is, is Stephen's saying they're in idolatry. What's the idolatry? That's the question. What will become his claim for the idolatry? There is something that is equivalent to them making a calf. 
Jesus is the greater Moses. He's brought them out of Exodus, but these people are unwilling to be brought out. They are the, 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 just like the people who are going, oh, if only we could go back to Egypt because it was so awesome. You know, this is the same thing going on. They're not willing to go out. And so Stephen's going, you are in idolatry. Acts 7, 42 to 43. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. So if we haven't sort of picked up, there's this constant theme of the heavenly council that's going on, right? Stephen's face is like an angel, God of glory, being worshipped by the heavenly beings. Again, here there's a host of heaven. There is an appropriate orientation of us to the angels. It's not worship. And so again, when you worship the heavenly host, you've missed the orientation, you've turned yourself in the wrong way. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years of the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now this section, again, just sort of come, come back and sort of quote some examples. This is, he quotes right out of, out of Amos here. Out of our lack of familiarity with scripture, Stephen is not just saying these words and only these words. No, he is capturing what is going on in this section and what is happening in Amos as he's doing that. So for instance, if I were to say to you, for especially for those who grew up, or kids in the 90s, to infinity and beyond. Uh, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Houston, we have a problem. All of these, especially if you grew up during those periods, not only are the words, right? Because we could take those exact same words and make, make different things out of them. The way that they're said brings emotions and experiences to them. In the same way, these people are supposed to be steeped in this stuff. And so when he quotes this, what is he doing? So if we go back to Amos 1, we should remind ourselves, Amos comes on the scene and he is announcing judgment of the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's a surprise because he starts off and starts going and announcing how there's judgment coming on all of these nations. And then he comes to the point where he says, the day of the Lord is coming. But it's coming against Israel. And so when Stephen pulls Amos out and starts quoting it, this is the type of thing we should be hearing. The day of the Lord is coming against Israel because they have become just like all the other nations. They're no different. They've stopped being the differentiating thing they were supposed to be in the first place. So Stephen quotes a portion of Amos. I'm going to put, read some of the stuff that goes around it because I think as you, you hear it, you'll understand more of how is he answering the questions that have been made up against him. So I'm going to start at Amos 5, 18 to 27. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and the gloom with no brightness in it? I hate and despise your feasts and I hate and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take me away from the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. 
but let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I want to read that part again. This is right before Stephen's, Stephen's quote that he's going to use. But let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you made for yourself, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, who is the God of hosts. So there's, again, a proper orientation to the host of heaven, and it's not worship of them. But what happens right before this, did you pick up on this? The very thing, Stephen's critiquing the law. But in the way he's doing it is different, right? He doesn't actually come out and say the law is a problem or, you know, that type of thing. What he's saying is, is do you understand the proper orientation of the law? Let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If you don't get that part, as Jesus says, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is love God and love your neighbor. If you don't get that, then the law doesn't work. The law isn't here to just, you know, sort of like force God into liking you. <laughs> the law is teaching wisdom, and in so doing, teaches you justice and mercy. If we don't get that, then we miss the orientation of the law. And that's what Stephen's coming here and saying, do you get it, guys? Doing the rules for sake of the rules doesn't matter. It's the heart. Don't ignore the widow. Don't ignore the immigrant. Care for them. This is the heart of the law. And so here he comes and he's just, he's, he's not, he's not, do you notice, we, he's never said, I'm going to answer the question about the law. But he has. So we've come to this point. So he's, he's hitting on this. He's hitting on the law. He's hitting on the fact that there's an appropriate orientation to these things. So what is still is the question is, is what is the idolatry that they are actually participating in? And that's where Amos, or Acts 7, 44 to 50 comes in. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Now that, that phrase, made by hands, is constantly used in the Old Testament of making idols. And so what Stephen is saying is, is, do you not see that the temple has become the very idol that wasn't supposed to be an idol? You have missed the proper orientation of the law. You've missed the proper orientation of the temple. You miss the complete, fundamental purpose of those things. They are not just there so that you can do it. You can therefore require God to be like obligated to like you. That's the wrong orientation. So then he goes in and he quotes Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So, Isaiah 66. Uh, what about um, just keep swimming, just keep swimming? What do you do? Yes, 
Uh, I'll probably ruin this one, but we'll try it anyway. The kid, the, my girls will be amused. Let it go, let it go. Three words, right? And it makes, it, it, for especially for the younger kids, right, there's a whole lot more experience than those three words. So in the same way, when Stephen does this and he brings us in, thus says the Lord, heaven is my earth, or is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to me, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom to I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Remember, let's hear this again. But this is to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Are they oriented that way? That's the question. So here, keep, keep going. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like the one who blesses an idol. You see it? Each of these places he's picked, he's specifically picked because right around them is this critique of the law if you don't get the orientation. You gotta have the orientation. Doing it for just doing it doesn't do anything. It becomes the very idol you're supposed to be avoiding. And so here's where Stephen is, and he's pointing all of this out to them. And we've come to that point, right? The very end of Stephen's speech. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you will always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen has put forward this argument that they don't keep the law, that they don't respect God or Moses, because they've completely missed it, that they didn't understand who Jesus was and therefore don't understand sacred space. Because Jesus is that, right? He is the place where God's space and our space overlap. And because we're that, that is where the temple is. And so as we move forward in Acts, the orientation isn't going to be, is the law something we don't care about? The question becomes, now that sacred space is democratized, maybe, as a possibility? It's this idea that we're, we're the sacred space. How do you approach that space and take it seriously? And what does that mean for how we understand the law? But at the heart of it, Stephen keeps getting to this, is do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That is the heart and what Stephen is driving at here. So their, their response, they grind or gnash their teeth. Sounds like somebody described in the Old Testament. Those who are godless and unrepentant. They stop their ears. Again, another term that's used for the godless and unrepentant. And so in the very act of demonstrating their unwillingness to be obedient, they actually continue to demonstrate it to a greater level. So if we go to Luke 8. I'm sorry, Luke 12. Jesus is talking. And I says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word 
against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So they've already blasphemed Jesus. And now, they choose to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So, you know, like Lucas, Lucas show it, is, is, is Jesus is, is foretelling what's going to come. They have now blasphemed both Jesus and now the Holy Spirit. And so judgment is, is imminent. The, there's the, 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 throughout scripture, the wit, two or three witnesses. <laughs> two of the three trinity have now blasphemed, been blasphemed against. Judgment is coming on Israel and specifically on Jerusalem. And in AD 70, we see a, a massive destruction of that. And, and this is something that Matthew does, uh, different, different portions of scripture does. The whole point is, is that they're constantly showing us that the very place, the very place that is supposed to be the blessing to the nations has become just like the nations. And it's, it's, a, temp, it's a test and temptation that all societies, all societies face to be a blessing, or to become just like Egypt. So Stephen looks up now, and he sees the true reality. In the same way that Jesus, on his trial, announced that when what was going to happen next was is that he was going to take his place, and as a son of man, just as in Daniel 7, he was going to take his place and be ruling. Stephen now looks up, and it sees exactly that reality. That he is not on trial in the way that we think of it. No, the very people who have put him on trial are on trial. Stephen is a witness. He is in a courtroom. It's just not the courtroom everybody thinks it is. We, in the same way, stand in that courtroom. We are witnesses. We are there. We have been invited. We are bearing witness to the world, and they can either accept it or reject it. And in so doing, they bring judgment on them. So, do you believe the true reality? We don't see Jesus, even though he says he is with us. In the same way, do you believe the reality that we are in the heavenly council, bearing witness to the truth? Do we believe the true reality, even though we don't see it? What Stephen sees is the true reality, even if we can't see it. Questions? Comments? Comments?